Hello, welcome to the full unedited version. Well, apart from, obviously, there are some edits because of things that we said which just are not apparently acceptable in any form of human society. But predominantly unedited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Hello, welcome to another episode of Book Shambles. Our guest today is the brilliant singer-songwriter Ben Kaplan, who dropped into the studio while he is out here on tour from his native Canada. And Michael Legg is the guest co-host filling in for Josie Long this week. And yesterday, Michael's brand new blog, uh, a music blog, Victoriola Music Shambles, the blog, uh, debuted, began, whatever you want to call it, on the Cosmic Shambles Network. Uh, Michael's going to be blogging regularly for the site about uh, various musical things. So he's talking about uh, the Rip It Up exhibition in Edinburgh and uh, the history of Scottish music in a first post. Check that out at cosmicshambles.com slash blogs as well as all the other brand new blogs from uh, brilliant people like Helen Chersky and Dean Burnett, John Butterworth, uh, Susie Gage, Ginny Smith, Robin, uh, all on the site at the moment. And all of that is made possible by your generous support on Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles. Uh, you can contribute uh, as little as a dollar a month or a dollar an episode. We never charge more than three episodes per month and you'll get extended episodes and behind the scenes footage and uh, all sorts of other stuff on there. So do check that out. Uh, and the other way you can support us is obviously spreading the word about uh, the stuff we do and the podcasts, uh, giving it five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, that really helps us out, as well as coming to our live events, of which we've got lots coming up. Uh, October 2nd, uh, Gower Street, Waterstones, Robin and Josie will be there chatting about Robin's new book, I'm a Joke, and so are you. October 6th, we're at the Ilkley Literature Festival doing Book Shambles Live. The guest there is uh, none other than Ghost Stories and League of Gentlemen writer Jeremy Dyson. Uh, we're at the QED conference, October 12 and 13. We're doing the Space Shambles quiz on the Friday night, then on Saturday doing Book Shambles with Wally Funk and Sue Nelson. October 22, uh, we're at the Manchester Science Festival with Sophie Scott and Charles Fernahoe doing Book Shambles live there. Then on November 1st, we're doing a big launch event for Robin's book at King's Place in London, uh, it's going to be a psychological variety night. Robin's going to be doing some stand-up. Uh, there'll be performances from Josie and Grace Petrie. And Robin will also be uh, live on stage in conversation with both Philippa Perry, uh, the psychotherapist, and Stuart Lee, who wrote the foreword for Robin's book. So they will all be there. Tickets for that are only 15 quid, and that gets you a discount off the book if you buy it on the night. And Robin will be there after the show uh, signing and dedicating and doing all that stuff. Uh, tickets for all those events, cosmicshambles.com. Go to the events page and you'll find out all about those. So now on to this week's episode. Here is Robin and Michael and Ben. <laughs> So, uh, hello everyone, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles, and uh, yet again, the part of Josie Long today is played by... All right, mate! It's me, I'm Josie Long. 
Michael Legg. Michael that's Legg. Me. Yeah, we'll that's my name. That's my name. And uh, we also have. I was. I was. Uh, ben Kaplan, who uh, the number of uh, Nova Scotia Folk Awards you have is uh, quite remarkable. I'm cleaning up in Nova Scotia. You are cleaning up in Nova. And uh, Ben was uh, playing in London last night at the Lexington, and is over here uh, also with uh, a musical Old Stock. And I've lost, well, let's start off by talking about that because Certainly. you 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 you've written a musical, uh, and people can hear bits of it if they want to go to Spotify, and of course they can buy it as well. But that, that's uh, um, it's about immigration. It's about the, 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 the journey of people. So when did that become... What, what was the starting point of that? Well, it, it began in earnest when uh, my co-creator of, of the play called me up and said, let's make a thing together. And we didn't know what that was to be, but he had heard my music and was interested in, in trying to collaborate on something. And uh, we really just bashed our heads against the wall for several weeks just trying to figure out what our thing was about. And uh, we knew that we wanted to tell a, a, a story that maybe had a Jewish theme. He was going to have a Jewish son. And so we were looking at these different old folk tales and trying to find a way into writing something that would feel like our own. And um, it was on our seventh or eighth writing session, with having accomplished little uh, at all, um, that we saw the photo of the young Alan Kurdi washed up on a beach in Turkey. And it was, you know, this arresting photograph. And the, our awareness of the Syrian refugee crisis was really suddenly sort of locked in. And we thought we should make a thing about refugees. And that was the, the first kick. Okay, forget these old folk tales. We have a way in here. We're going to use a Jewish story to think about the contemporary refugee crisis. We wanted to, you know, think about Syrians and think about the the refugee crisis, but it didn't feel like our story to tell. And so that that first mover of like, well, let's try to think about what kind of a, a weird modern Jewish play can we make, and then. Uh, that's a very interesting thing about the idea of, of it's not your story to tell because I think that's become in, in public consciousness and certainly in the last I think even in the last year that bit about should who has the right to tell the story and who should and, and I think that's an interesting discussion and and I've, I've, I've as over time I think I'm more and more I come round to that idea of going hang on a minute uh, you know my background says we should find someone else to tell this story as opposed to being there. sure how do I empower a voice who can tell their own story rather than I think there's a there's a certain white privilege or an entitledness to I can tell whatever story I want and I, I think that I don't think that that has to be false but I think one has to be tasteful and considerate about how one goes about it and I think that by by taking source material and by taking history and mythology and culture that does belong to me and that I have an authentic way into, to think and then to extrapolate that or to, to use the specific to think about the general, I think gave us access to make a very timely and political work while still being humorous and light and authentic um, and not hammering the audience over the head. I didn't want to make a play that was like, it's bad to keep refugees out. Because, uh, yeah, yeah, I know, I've heard it, blah, 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 you communist, lefty, pinko, whatever. Um, whereas, you know, we didn't have to do that because we could just tell a story about human beings. And then in the end, it was just about humanizing individuals who were going through a real story. And I think that if the show is successful, it's successful because it humanizes the very specific story we tell and then allows the audience to make whatever general conclusions they wish. That humanizing thing is very... We, we had someone on, on the podcast uh, probably a couple of years ago called Yana Teller, and uh, she's written, written a brilliant book called uh, Nothing, but she also has written a book called War, which always comes... It looks like a passport, and normally it kind of looks a little bit like the passport of the country, that, she, that but she, she rewrites the book for every country it's published in, and it's basically telling the story 
story of what if your country suddenly went through an incredible level of civil unrest and there was a collapse? And sure. and also Philip Ridley, who I don't know if you know, is a, a great playwright and novelist. And uh, and the last set of monologues that I saw him do, uh, one of the monologues was uh, this guy and he's telling his life. And then suddenly, and every now and again it flashes back and this guy, he, he's, he's drowning. We don't really know what's going on. And then there's this horrible moment where the whole audience suddenly get, oh, now I know what the story is. This is a story but set very much in, in England. Right. Of again of collapse and what happens when you have to give up everything because yeah. I think that's that seems to me one of the the hardest thing that so much of of uh, our mass media and and the way we identify as ourselves there's a point a line that is drawn where you go ah uh, ah but these people are different right you know we always know if there's a disaster somewhere in the USA then that will be on the front pages here for maybe a few days if there is a disaster in somewhere like India it's not as big a story because we have this mm-hmm. thing where we uh, kind of the ah oh, that's ah oh, that those people are different and over there it can't happen yeah. here yeah yeah I mean I think that's that's a, it's an important thing people don't think about the fact that you know many of the Syrian refugees were computer programmers and civil servants and people who worked in engineering firms and architects you know you think of oh they're off there and they live in the desert and they're totally different than me and they probably had it coming and they're all radicals and extremists and. And it's not the case. There were people living in in urban cities, um, living you know modern lives in a, in a different political and geographical context, and it's it's hard to hold that in one's mind. And so we don't. Yeah, so the common thing you probably had it, Mike, where you end up chatting to a cab driver if you've got quite a long journey, right. and you find out they were a doctor or a surgeon, <laughs> sure. whatever. But uh, here, all of that has just been wiped away, and yeah, it's yeah. Um, so. How did you, um, in terms of, of book wise, uh, the research to create these characters and these stories? Where did that take you? Well, um, I mean, a lot of it actually wound up being um, looking at. Um, at Talmudic sources, like thinking about what would the the worldview have been of these people and trying to understand the religious context, the cultural context that the people in our story would have been coming out of. And then I also did a lot of reading of um, uh, books about uh, of refugees and, and immigrants living in Canada at the turn of the 20th century. It is a story about two Romanian Jewish refugees who came to Canada in 1908. So just thinking about, you know, what were the kinds of professions that were open to people in Canada in 1908, especially as an othered group. Um, you know, and as a Jew living in Canada in 2018, you know, we don't see ourselves culturally. We're not seen as the other all of the time, although there still is anti-Semitism and all that kind of stuff. But, um you know, predominantly, the Jewish people have have mostly become incorporated into into Western society, which was not the case in 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 nineteen oh eight. People would not have been able to just fully integrate. And so, yeah, reading books. Um, I'm trying to remember the names of things. I'm terrible. I'm bad with names and faces. You're with uh, the right people. Yeah, good. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, just just reading a lot of, a lot of history about about you know the kinds of jobs that people would have had, the kinds of houses people would have lived in. It's interesting that, that, that bit of uh, thinking historically where, I mean, 
quite often over here, there's the newspapers are dragged up from the 1930s where showing their attitude to uh, popular fascists and uh, the rejection, for instance, of, of refugee boats that would have been coming from Germany and mm-hmm. people who returned. And, and uh, I, I know I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but Simon Garfield uh, is an author who does a lot of kind of documentary books. And one of his books was called Our Hidden Lives, where he went to a thing called the Mass Observation Diaries, where people used to, in Britain, they, they would send off their diaries, I think, every month and they would go to a great big archive to get a sense of who the British people were. And when he was researching Our Hidden Lives, uh, which in particular was looking at the mass observation during the Second World War, he said after, he said what was peculiar, he said, I only found one diary of the ones that I looked at, which didn't at some point have some reasonably kind of strenuous anti-Semitism in it. Hmm. Yeah, and that's 1930s, 1940s. It's pretty mainstream, pretty widespread. Mm. Uh, yeah. And it's it's easy to think that that doesn't exist anymore. But I think... You know, for, for me, my identity as a Jewish person in 2018 is to think about how that same phenomenon applies to other cultural groups. It's easy to sit in a position of comfort and say, well, it's, I can get whatever job I want. I don't have a daily encounter with being othered or, or anti-Semitism in general. Um, but because my my parents did and my grandparents did, I think I have a responsibility to think about how those same forces impact other people today. And I need I need to see a solidarity with other groups who are experiencing the same thing. And I find it very disturbing when, um, you know, in particular in the United States, there are a lot of very conservative Jewish voices. And it boggles my mind because how can you affiliate yourself with these kinds of views that just 100 years prior you would have been on the other side of? Um, you would have been the other. And, uh, you know, to have that lack of historical context and memory um, to be able to other people in that way, I, I just find it shocking. Michael, you were talking about that with me uh, a while ago where you ended up saying something involved about, about the, the, the debates of that kind of othering and someone said, you've got, you don't know what it's like. And you kind of reminded the fact that to be Irish yeah, in, well, in England, which is which I'd almost forgotten, you know, when, when yeah. in, in, in the 1980s where there were, um, you know, various, uh, basically Ireland and uh, Northern Ireland and, uh, troubles, and the mainland UK, troubles. Yeah, that's a good way of summing it up, actually. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that, and, and you, you, you talk about your experience. Well, yeah, I mean, it was just, it's very weird. Uh, it, it, like, it's hard to believe that this was 1989, 1990 in London. Right. But being on the tube, and hearing large groups of very drunk men singing, you know, fuck the IRA, you go, what? 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 I, you know, it, this is a pretty scary thing to be sort of sitting feet away from because, you know, like if I open my mouth and they hear my accent, which is beautiful, by the way. It's very uh, lovely. Thank you. Thank yeah, you yeah. so much. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm, I, I sort of, we, we had that already. And when I grew up in Northern Ireland, had right. everyone hating one another. And that, so just for, definitely for the first few years of me living here, like, for instance, um, like having a a policeman, uh, having a policeman basically say, you know, shut it, Paddy. And I'm like, well, I'm not feeling too comfy over here anymore. What I think so. is nice is that when that actually died down, then you uh, took to going, well, I don't seem to be getting any abuse now. So you became a stand-up comedian. Yeah, and, and then uh, a vegan. And then that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. a vegan stand-up yes. comedian. <laughs> so, oh, at last I can bring the abuse. And I, I can have a greater control over the yeah, way they throw exactly. things at me. And it's because of that that I find it really disappointing that these days it happens at so many gigs that I do. Hey, Paddy, so, what, what, I'm getting called Paddy again? 
This is now coming back. Is it? Yeah, it's been like that for easily wow. the last three years. Huh. Honestly, well, I mean, you know, let's face it, we're all performers, so we probably, when people, the real people, n- the normal people that we know, mm-hmm. when they went, well, let's face it, Brexit's never going to happen. Trust me, as a stand-up comic, yes, it will. Yeah, I've sure. met the people. Yeah. So Ben, what do you uh, in terms of your 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 reading? Uh, in terms of, I mean, especially touring. I think sometimes when you're touring, it can be quite hard to take in information, and sure. so you've kind of. Well, I used to be very ambitious in my, in my reading. I would always carry around a rucksack with five or six different nonfiction books, you know. And I'd, I'd like, oh, geez, I haven't read Heidegger in a while. I better brush up again. And uh, I just never read a thing because you know I'd get home from a gig and maybe I'd want to do something for 45 minutes before I fall asleep. And it's like, well, am I going to open up the the treatises of Kant or am I going to look <laughs> at Instagram? And Instagram would win every time. So now I'm a, a little bit more measured. I, I bring in lighter stuff. I just finished a book by a guy named Tom Wilson. He's a Canadian musician. And I'm blanking on the name of the book. Um, but he's only written the one. So if people want to find We're out... We're going to find <laughs> out. Don't worry. We have a screen of magic in which oh, Trent, our perfect. producer, will look up. Uh, well, that's it. Um, the, the Heidegger, because I, I've just been doing a book purge at home. I have to, I have, just don't have any space left. And I, I'm still the same. I've, I've got five non-fiction books in my rucksack now um, for my trip to South End, And uh, philosophy is one of the first things that I've sacrificed. I've mm. kind of realised that I can read books that summarise great philosophers. Sure. But really, things like Heidegger and Kant, am I really going to... Those two in particular, they're not really meant for reading, are they? I mean, like, if you want to read Heidegger, read Sartre, you know, because he makes it nice and digestible and easy and popular, and you can get the gist of it, and he's a wonderful plagiarizer, and it's fun to read. Um, <laughs> but the Heidegger, it's it's just, it's it's not written for popular consumption and it's abstruse and you have to read it over and over again and it's you know you can read a lovely summary um but you know i i did go back i mean i I do carry i have a a lovely bookshelf of of philosophy texts and uh one of the songs on my album i actually uh pulled out my old pico de la mirandola and actually put a, a nice chunk of text from from pico's oration on the dignity of man into one of the tunes um, and so I was able to like please all of my university professors who I, I doubt they've actually listened to the song. So you actually read philosophy then? That was your... I did, uh, yeah. And, and what area of philosophy then? Well, I, I, I focused on the early modern period uh, and reading uh, primarily primary texts. Uh, so it was a course of study where we started basically with Pico de la Mirandola in, what, 1340 or whatever, uh, and seeing him as the sort of first uh, opener-upper, uh, he said eloquently, of, of modernity, thinking about man as something, or of humanity, as something shapeable, where you could sort of like pick your place in the world and, and you, your destiny wasn't set. Um, and then going through that up until about Nietzsche. And so reading, you know, when everything starts to fall apart and then we <laughs> are really into modernity or post-modernity or whatever the hell you want to call it. Um, and uh, so it was it was a great way of, of, of learning philosophy because you're not just reading what textbook writers think and you're not just hearing what your professors think, but the, the course of study was really about understanding the cultural milieu that the ideas came out of, looking at the history in depth and then reading the primary sources and learning how to read the primary sources and how to put your mind into the mind of who was writing the text to understand them on the, at their own level. 
And I, I think it was great because it, it, it was a great education for deconstructing ideas. Um, and, uh, you know, now when I read things, I, I have a sense of the malleability of ideas and also the temporality of ideas, the fact that we are in a historical moment and the fact that I've taken the time to try to understand different historical moments, I think allows me a bit more of a natural skepticism about whatever flavor of the philosophical moment is. Um, yeah. That idea of the, the, the shapeability and, and the control you have, you know, going back, if you say, 1340, that's interesting. When you think of 20th century psychology and the fact, you know, we, we, the, the speed in which we move from the, you know, there's a blank slate and mm-hmm. then now you know, th- there are certain people who want to say it's, it's all in the genes and, and where science is saying, do you know what? It's such a hodgepodge, again, of, of kind of, uh, of, 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 of culture and, and the hardware that's in it. So I think that's it's an interesting, because for a lot of history, the, there was a, well, tremendous desire presumably from authority figures to say no 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 like the divine right of kings you know the UK absolutely th- this yeah. is or, or you know the, the the pope and all of those kind of, you know, the, oh no, no no it's all set in place already you are the serfs you are the sacrificial people for the wars uh, these people are born to lead you and in fact in some ways I, f- I feel that we're back there in the UK at the moment there's certain people certain people who are now what might be the kind of new upper class so I think have returned to that uh, we we are here to rule you and yeah. do not question us right yeah, I mean, it's these things all all move in, in in waves and in cycles, and it's the ideas are necessarily of their time, and uh, you know you can't you can't really understand the the present. I think until you've seen uh, different ideas grow and come to fruition and fall apart and be totally rotted and fetid and and then have new things grow out of those and. You know, it, once you've once you've looked at a series of historical moments over the course of centuries, you can sort of set, get the sense the American Empire is doomed to crumble. It's inevitable, and having that worldview, I think you live your life in a in a slightly different way than imagining that. Okay, now we've reached the end of history. Mm-hmm. You know, now things are going to be stable forever. Um, that's great. Everything. Every time you go back to Francis, it's Francis Fukuyama, isn't it? They're just the end of history it pops up in every book I read. <laughs> and in 1992, he said it was the end of history. Well, actually, <laughs> what a jagged. And yet, he's, that's one of the hardest things, isn't it? When you have authority figures, and he has been, you know, still, uh, you know, kind of a public intellectual authority figure, mm-hmm. and you go, but now you're telling us this, and so why are we meant to go? Ah, oh, now, yeah, in 1992, I said that, and I told everyone to believe that, and it was definitely true. Uh, okay, I was wrong, but now. And you go, yeah. why are you know that that the, the feet of clay are a very necessary thing? Certainly, but quite unpopular as well because you know the kind of uh, you want the Fox News metal boots are what people are after, aren't they? Yeah. How do you find? I mean, in terms of what you're doing musically, in terms of what you hope the audience take away beyond having a night which they've enjoyed, do you? From having the background you've had from talking about the kind of the, the, the politics of, of uh, old stock uh, in terms of also your, your reading of philosophy, what do you hope in the perfect version someone who's been to see you takes away from, from that gig? Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I think t- the honest answer is that when I'm constructing a set list, when I'm putting together the show, I'm, I'm thinking about the night out. I'm thinking about how to hit different points. I try to have moments of, of authenticity, of, of humanity, of tenderness, and moments of bombast and extravaganza and, uh, you know, just having a, a dance and, and just losing your mind a little bit and forgetting your humanity. Um, but it's, it's when I'm writing the songs that I, I try to, to think more philosophically about it. And I, I, I try to give the audience credit. I used to try to 
to talk about here's what I was thinking when I wrote this song or here's what I hope you'll get out of this song. And I've almost entirely ceased to do that because I'd like to give my audience credit to figure it out for themselves or not. Um, but, you know, I've got songs about, uh, you know, one of my the favorite songs that I've written recently is a, is a song called Lullaby. And, um, you know, the song is is sort of about um, what it means to give up your own hopes for the next generation and, and to, to have a feeling of, of positivity or at least equanimity about that, to, to invest in, in your children. And I think so much of what the refugee or the immigrant experience is about, I'm going to make a sacrifice in my own life so that the next generation can live better. Because you're a doctor somewhere else in the world and you're going to come to London to be a taxi driver. Sure, maybe there's a nasty political situation, but you're probably going to do at least a little bit better staying where you are. But you move because you believe the odds are better that the next generation is going to have a leg up. And so to to write a song about what it feels like, the emotional content of giving your life up for your children. Um, and, you know, to say it like that in prose is like a little bit, you know, well, you're talking, you think you're very smart, don't you? Um, but that's the, the, the great thing about poetry and songwriting is that you can put the feeling and the pictures and the ideas of it into a different context. And hopefully it washes over somebody. And when they're in a context where they see a taxi driver who was once an engineer, there's this little poem in the back of their mind that opens up the humanity of this other person. Um, so that's that's really the goal for that one specific song. Uh, and yeah, every song's a little bit different. And the sun will sleep in the ocean tonight And the cool of the water makes everything right And the ocean once dreamed it could shine high But protecting, reflecting the sun is enough We used to go dancing We used to drink wine We used to buy flowers and That moment you, you were mentioning that, it makes me think of the kind of second generation uh, immigrant New Yorkers who, uh, particularly people like Howard Zinn, the uh, anarchist historian, and uh, Carl Sagan and Richard Feynman, when you read about where they had come from or where their parents... I mean, Carl Sagan writes about in uh, his, the book Pale Blue Dot uh, and he talks about you know travelling through the universe and, and he talks about his grandfather's job was to be a bridge. His grandfather, his job was to carry people across the river. Hmm. And he then uses that to talk about the journey that we take through the universe. And Richard Feynman, when, when he was born, his dad, who, who worked as a, as, as a tailor, was immediately, he's going to be a scientist. I'm going to make it. Yeah, and, and he becomes a Nobel Prize winning scientist. Right. Howard Zinn's parents, uh, one thing they did was they collected all these tokens so they would get a different Dickens book arrived mm. uh, every month. And it was just these little low-budget books. And again, they were going, we, we've had one life, but we're going to make sure that, you know, he reads and he's going to, 
And I think that's a... And what other, what, what greater humanizer is there than that? Because it, across all cultures, we all have children. <laughs> Most people, that's how mm-hmm. cultures survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and in and, and every culture, we want the best for our children. And so when you can think about, instead of a mass of people coming across the border, come to take our jobs, come to take away our lives, you know, whatever truth there is or isn't to that, and I think it's mostly not at all, um, what we have in common with these people is that they are looking for a better life for their children and they love their children. They want good for their children. And the way in which they define that, the way the foods they want to eat and the cultural traditions that they want to pass on, those things will change. But the love for the next generation remains constant. Michael, you've bought... In fact, I'm going to ask you in terms of being moved by music because I think mm-hmm. it's an interesting thing when you talk about the power of... I recently saw Amanda Palmer... Uh, and she's, I think, about to, or maybe well, by the time this goes out, she's probably recorded her new album. And the songs were about abortion and miscarriage and uh, the, what what happened in uh, the Republic of Ireland recently, mm-hmm. the change of legislation in mm-hmm. terms of... And there was a point when I was... It was just her and the piano. There was a point where I thought, I'm not actually hearing the words at all, I don't think, but there's something that you just yeah, goes right... And, and and I left, and it... it it was all there, but it wasn't that you, as you were saying, it wasn't that you were listening to every detail of every sentence. Go, oh, I see. Ben's right. agenda is ah, yes, something's going on, and then afterwards, and that's what, again what I love about the kind of the shamanism of, of of music. And we've talked before about you know when you watch someone like Nick Cave, there's mm-hmm. what happens at the, uh, is, it, when you've got seven thousand people in an arena, and what they're partly because of, of the length of time that they've loved his music and the Bad Seeds music, but also then because of things that have happened in his life more recently, the loss of a child. There's, it is an incredible. Yeah. What, Absolutely. What, well, I mean, going to see something like that, you hear those beautiful songs, but uh, but played right next to something that's really raucous. Mm. It's really amazing. But that's what I think. That's what I think I took from old stock because the, it, there's there's a lot of raucous in it as well. Sure. Like um, uh, Widow Bride. It's just it's phenomenal. It's a phenomenal. Record. But Canada knew how to do. Teach it to if you want a happy life. Get yourself a bride. There you go. I was just giving you a compliment. Yeah, great. Well, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, so, what if you, you've got a couple of music books with you, Michael? What if you? Because uh, you were saying you've read Tom Wilson's book, which we haven't found out what the title is yet. Probably because there's many Tom Wilsons, but I reckon yeah, Tom Wilson, Canadian a... musician, autobiography. We're going to get there. Um, he was in a band called Junk House. What, would, what are the bands? Was he that in? has to be enough. Blackie clues. and the Rodeo if Kings. If Tom Wilson and Junk House, if we go, oh, yeah, again, fifteen thousand results mm-hmm. have come up for that. <laughs> I reckon we'll be able to nail that one down. Do you do you like reading uh, musicians' kind of? Because again, Nick Cave, I love reading things like Sick Bag Song and, uh, and the. Or the angel. I haven't read a lot of musicians' books actually, but this guy he grew up in my hometown, and uh, which is Hamilton, Ontario, and uh, so reading about what the music scene was like in Hamilton in the seventies and eighties and nineties was really fascinating. Like I went to high school with his daughter, and to read about this drunken, lecherous mess of a man mm-hmm. talking about his daughter arriving, and then being like, "Shit, that's Madeline in my high school class," mm-hmm. uh, and talking about how you know seeing his daughter for the first time and the way in which it led him to try to get his, his act together and then not getting his act together and winding up in rehab and having to say goodbye to his kids and all this kind of stuff. It was this really 
I, I had a, a deep personal connection to because I knew the characters. It was really shocking to read it. But I think even if I hadn't known him, it's this really touchingly vulnerable exploration of this man's life and and how to make a life and what the pitfalls had been uh, making a life in music, which is, of course, my aspiration. So, so it was... Very, very interesting, and it was on a very human level. I find I, I disconnect sometimes when the, the level of celebrity is so big that it all feels a little bit like a fairy tale, mm-hmm. although I guess often the goal is to strip that away and, and mm-hmm. give that picture of authenticity. So I think you know I may well dig into a few more uh, autobiographies of musicians, but I've read a few terrible or at least portions of terrible autobiographies. It's uh, Well, sometimes you want to go for the real full-on ones. I mean, I know something that Michael likes mm-hmm. is uh, the generally the heavy rock genre. I do, uh, yeah, of, yeah. There yeah. are certain, you know, Motley Crue. Sometimes you go, this I think is distant enough from your own, you know, aspirations, yeah. and you go, this is... Or even something like Lemmy's book, White Line Fever, mm-hmm. which is Yeah, uh, I love the really stories. I wouldn't want to be those people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I've got no dream or want to be <laughs> any of those people. Uh, but... Oh, by the way, we should say Beautiful Scars. Beautiful is, Scars, that's yeah. the one. Beautiful Scars by Tom Wilson. Really nice read. I've I've only... I'm not, I haven't finished reading this book yet. Have you heard of Beans on Toast? Yeah, yeah, I've seen Beans on Toast. Right, I don't yeah. know. I don't, he's a musician. I don't know him at all. But I was given this book. It's called Drunk Folk Stories. And the reason why I wanted to talk to you about this book, even though I haven't finished it yet, is because recently I, recently I saw a band called The Keep Cats. And they're 15 years old. Huh. And they're brilliant. And I was like... I just saw them and I went, I've wasted my life. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like this yeah, yeah. is such a kick in the teeth. Wow. They're having a great time. <laughs> and this book is about a guy and his incredible love of n- not just music, but being in music. It's got bad stories in it. And he says them like they're the most amazing thing. Like he's in a car crash on his way to a gig. It was brilliant. Because he got to the gig. So he <laughs> I nearly died. And it was amazing. Yeah. And it, like he... Uh, the the first time that he ever went to a gig was Glastonbury Festival, and he went there and he, but because he, he was fifteen, right. he had no money, he just went, and all of a sudden, it, like people were going, "What do you mean you've come here with no money, no tent, not nothing? No." He said, "You'll die here." You'll <laughs> die. And then he got befriended by a group of um, Christians. Who basically were you like? Well, you can come to uh, be with us, but you know you're gonna have to uh, observe our prayer time and everything. And he's like, "Well, this is the craziest thing." But look at me, I'm in Glastonbury. Yes, yes, yes. I've been coaxed into a cult. Yeah. But I'm in Glastonbury. And that's the main thing. So it's really, really, really good fun. And it was the same sort of thing. He's got the same excitement that I saw. In the Keep Cats, it's like, we're 15, we're in a band, this is amazing. Yeah. It's, they've got everything that I am not. So that's why, yeah, that's why I'm really enjoying the book. So, yeah, Beans on Toast, have a look at it. He's, he's really yeah, it's great. Folk he's stories. really, uh, cool. and he's, he's very often, and also we should say that gig where uh, Michael was was at the West End Arts Centre, which is an older shot, which is one of uh, our favourite uh, venues, I think, Brilliant. and it's run by wonderful, wonderful people and really worth uh, supporting. And the other book you've bought is... Well, this is quite the book. This is called Iggy Pop Life Class. Uh, what happened was... Uh, Jeremy Deller, that's his name, he went to the Brooklyn Museum with an idea. He knew that they did uh, life drawing classes and they have a sizable class. I think it's about uh, 25 people go and every week there's a new model that they will draw. One week, uh, Jeremy Deller came along with Iggy Pop. So there's Iggy Pop completely naked being drawn by 25 strangers. I mean, a lot of them, no idea 
who Iggy Pop is. Sure. A lot of them going, holy crap, that's Iggy Pop. And the book is really, it's but I mean, it is all very, but, you know, uh, uh, gender and sexuality. But it's also just hearing, uh, or reading, should I say, Iggy talking about how vulnerable he felt. But, like, he wasn't in charge because he had to mm. sit still. It's like, I don't sit still. I'm Iggy fucking pop. I'm getting, he had to sit perfectly still. And then and then he started to think about his own body and how, like, he said the only time that he was ever unhappy in his life. Now, keep in mind the things that he's put his body through, the heroin that he has put it, 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 into the his body. The time he thought he had all those rats in right. his stomach. Exactly, yeah. He would slash his yeah. own body you know, on, on stage one night. With broken bottles, he said the only time that he's really uh, ever unhappy momentarily in his life was when he got a little bit overweight. <laughs> oh, that was it. So he's clearly, he's a man that's just totally obsessed with how he looks. And the, do you know why he uh, he walks around without a shirt? It's because um, Egyptian kings never wore shirts. And that's why he does it. Of course. Wow. Yeah. So basically, it's a, little, a brilliant book. A little bit outrageous in this climate. Absolutely, <laughs> um, absolutely. Yeah, he might put a shawl on. I think if he's over here. But uh, but it's it, it's not it's a utterly brilliant book. But but let's face it, he's a fictional character. He does he's not real. So everything he says, you know, of course he he's inspired by Egyptian kings or thinks he is one. Right. He's well, we know why he was a bit overweight one time as well. If you've yeah. read the book Heroes, which is about uh, David Bowie's Berlin years, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a lovely bit where basically the author explains that uh, the reason that uh, uh, Bowie and Epop stopped sharing a flat together was okay. because Bowie would get back and go, I can't believe it. I told Iggy that I was saving that cheese for tonight and he's gone and eaten it. So Because apparently Bowie always mm. did the shopping. Right. And then he'd go, oh, Iggy's had all the yogurt and <laughs> that beautiful mix of the kind of you know the mundane here are two of the most yeah. splendid musicians of the century. and the thing is Iggy didn't have teeth when he first met Bowie no. Bowie bought him teeth yeah. So it's Bowie's fault if he's eating all that cheese. Did they do a swap? Because Bowie had his done, didn't he? Oh, so that's he goes, true. I think. Goes, yeah. oh, I'll tell you what, yeah. Yeah, have these old ones. Yeah, I'm not using uh, them. Yeah, have yeah. Them. it's fine. Yeah. Um, the uh, idea of Iggy Pop without teeth is the most horrifying yeah. image in my life yeah. ever. Yeah, because yeah, we were saying before we started about this fact, uh, well, you, well, you mentioned about seeing it, but hopefully, if that's okay, we did. I think that might have been recording at that point. But yeah, we, we sure. use it as long as you But it was, yeah, there is something so. I mentioned there's this uh, film of uh, Michael Moorcock's The Final Program, the first Jerry Cornelius novel, and it ends with this kind of new superhuman creature coming out and there is something Iggy, Iggy Popish about mm. it there is something that is uh, all beast or man yes um, Ben your uh, tour we'll just find out so uh, Old Sock is uh, in London it's going to be at the Arts Depot that's right yeah um, Manchester you're at the Lowry which is a fantastic venue so I've heard yeah really beautiful venue and uh, where else is it going I can pull it up on my telephone. I don't actually know. I've got oh, so many know? tour we'll, dates. We'll, we'll put it up we'll with this podcast yeah. as well, so everyone will know where you're... So, yeah, I mean, I'm touring with my band uh, between now and October 5th is, I think, our last date. We'll, we'll finish up three nights at the Lexington. I, I imagine this will come out after I finished up at, in, in London. Uh, but then we tour through, I, I don't know, we're in Berlin and Hamburg and Oslo and Copenhagen and all these lovely places, all through the Netherlands and uh, Munich and blah, blah, blah. Um, all the places that I left out will not be pleased to be have called blah. And then uh, and then we'll take the old stock to I think eight different British theaters um, from from I don't know as far north as Doncaster I think and as far south as Brighton. And then we have a couple of days off, and then we mount the show again in, in three or four different cities in the Netherlands, and uh, well, they'll come up at some point. And um, 
And then we take uh, another week-long break before the show goes to Montreal, and then from there it goes to Australia, and then from there it goes to California, and California to the west coast of Canada. Then I go on tour with my band again from the west coast to the east, and then the show goes up in Toronto for a couple of months. And then... uh, Geez, then it'll be summer of 2019, and I'll take a break for a week or two. When are you in Toronto? When are you doing that? Uh, it'll be in Toronto from, I think it opens January, February, March, April 14th or 15th. It'll be April through uh, May. Oh, good. Yeah, are you be in Toronto? I should be in Toronto in May. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, if you I miss sh- it at the Arts Depot, tickets are going fast. <laughs> I, I will, uh, and I will, I'll just quickly plug, actually, Toronto gig, 15th of November. Uh, I'm doing Generator again with uh, Chris Hadfield and various guests. So if anyone is listening to this in uh, Toronto, I'll be there on the 15th of November. Michael, where are you? Uh, I'm never next? going to Toronto. No, I'm, I can't, don't see it in my diary ever. I'm it's glad not, my it's request to the government was I, actually taken. I wish taken. I could go. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a fairly brutalist city. I, you're not missing <laughs> <Yeah>. much. <laughs> That's what I, I love the fact that people, because I love Toronto. W- one of the reasons is I'm a huge fan of David Cronenberg. So every single tower block looks like it may well have a strange, <laughs> visceral, viral secret that is God. going on. Um, so, Ben, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, as I said, you can you can hear snippets of old stock. Uh, you know, go on the internet, but, but buy it. It's a fantastic uh, album. And, uh, Michael, is there anything? It that is we a can... great album. And do you know what's been lovely here today is listening to you speak because... I can hear your singing voice in your speaking voice. And honestly, your singing voice is stunning. And your speaking voice, uh, trust me, from someone who knows, you, my friend, should go into commercial voiceover work. If you know anybody, I'm looking for an agent. He does it all the time. (laughs) The guys here always recording it. Do one of your voices. Do one of your voices. (laughs) Mercedes, experience the ride. He really did that. That was wow. him. That yeah. was you. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. It, I mean, obviously, only in very specific areas. That was not the international yeah. campaign. Right. Uh, but it was uh, in certain areas of, uh, of how, Northern Ireland. In Canada, country. I would have been like, I thought it was a German car. <laughs> <laughs> What's this Irish bloke doing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just pretend to be whoever I <laughs> Can I ask you as well, because in terms of uh, Canadian uh, fiction, and you know, there may well be authors that... Uh, who who would you recommend that we, we might not know about here yet? Is hmm. there anyone that you've been... I mean, my favorite Canadian writer is John Ralston Saul. He's, he mostly is a, is a nonfiction writer. He has a, a fictitious book. Uh, what's it called? Um, I've started reading it, and I, I just sort of... I, I started reading the first few pages, and it seemed a little bit dry. And I put it down for a little while, and then I flipped to the middle of the book just as I was trying to decide which books to pack for my tour. And there was this lovely little vignette about a woman cutting off her own toe uh, so that she could give the people who had come to kill her proof of her, uh, of her death. And it just seemed... It was very, very interesting little bit of read. So, anyways, John Ralston Saul is, is a guy who's written a book that I'm excited about reading. But who else is? I don't know. Um, I'm useless for you. I can't. I can't. There's lots of great writers, but I. Because I went to some, there were some great secondhand bookshops in Vancouver, and then after we went there, it turned out there was a bald eagle in the park as well. That was a good day in Vancouver. You had a really lovely time, didn't you? I had a really lovely time. So I will be living in a secret silo in Canada uh, for the rest of my life without them knowing. Lovely. Well, give me your phone number. We'll have tea. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, you won't be able to get sick because I'm right down the bottom of the secret silo just in case of Armageddon again. Uh, We've got the list of your dates, by the way. So we just say, uh, for the time this goes out, hopefully you've got two nights at Warwick Arts Centre, which is, again, absolutely fantastic and beautiful venue. Uh, The Arts Depot in Finchley, Hartford Theatre, the Gulbenkian in Canterbury, Old Market, Brighton. Well, that's actually... Old Market's in Hove, 
I don't know if it's Hove, it's yeah, Brighton, it's it very much Hove. on the border. Yeah, no, it's, it's, definitely it's, Hove. It's, it's, it's a dangerous one there. <laughs> the Lowry in Manchester, Oxford Playhouse, Doncaster, and then uh, across the world. So go and find out what uh, Ben is up to. Uh, I'm on about a 60-date tour of the UK with my new book, uh, I'm a Joke and So Are You, and also with my stand-up show, Chaos of Delight. And uh, Michael I is... I just gig uh, all the time. You, yeah, if you'd like to know more about Michael's life, don't. Yeah. Don't. It will dissuade you from living your own because it's a very glamorous... You're just always talking about the comfort of cars for money, aren't you? Experience the ride. Volkswagen's velvety. Mm. No, it's bad when you do it. It's creepy. Yeah, it is. It's quite creepy. <laughs> uh, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Ben. And thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. Ta-ta. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. You can get all of Ben's tour dates on his site, bencaplan.ca. And thanks to Ben for giving us permission to use some of uh, the songs off his new album, Old Stock, in this episode as well. Make sure you check out all Robin's dates and uh, pre-order his book and come to the launch event on November 1st. Make sure you check out Michael's new blog for Cosmic Shambles as well, the Vitriola Music Shambles blog. If you can support us on Patreon, uh, please go check that out as well, patreon.com slash bookshambles. And we'll be back next week with another new episode recorded on location in Northampton, which of course means our special guest co-host. Next week, the role of Josie Long will be played by Alan Moore and Robin and Alan will be chatting to Drunken Baker's writer, Barney Farmer. So don't miss that one. We'll be back next week. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Good, good, good.